We'll begin today's share. It's uh, an absolute pleasure to be with you today. This week, the share on Parshas Boy is sponsored by Ed and Cecile Gromis in memory of Ed's mother, Chana Gromis, Chana Basmosh Yehuda HaKoyen, Aleha Sholom, whose yard site is on the 7th of Shvat. And uh, we hope Hanashama has an Aliyah. We wish Ed and Cecile Arichas Yomim and we should be zeichet to see Tchias Hamesim. It's a wonderful share today, very special, very unusual topic. Well, the topic isn't so unusual. It's actually the explanation that I'm going to be sharing with you, which is so unusual. And we're going to be talking today about the plague of darkness. It's the ninth plague of the tenth plague. You know that Boy has the last three, the final three plagues that's resulted in the exodus from Egypt. Egypt had to go through this uh, period of great difficulty and challenges. As they uh, went through that process, the Jewish people were already somewhat liberated. They couldn't get out of Egypt, but they were no longer working as slaves. And then, ultimately, after Makas Bechores, which is in this week's Parsha, the uh, slaying of the firstborn, the exodus happened, and that's in this week's Parsha, the culmination of the slavery in Egypt, which was such a formative moment for the Jewish people. In fact, it was the formative moment. And many of the things that we do in our faith, we say, Zecher Lietzias Mitzrayim, we remember the exodus from Egypt. But in that process, there was a plague that was known as Makas Choshech, the plague of darkness. And its description, its definition the way we understand it from the verses in the Torah is a little bit ambiguous. I'm going to read through the psukim now. You have your source sheet. It should be um, on the uh, comment section of the... Uh, if you look at the comment section of the Zoom, you should be able to uh, download it, upload it, whatever the word is. If you're watching this on YouTube, it's a comment. If you're, if you're listening to this on SoundCloud, it's also a comment. You can download the source sheet if you're on my website. There's a link there and you can access the source sheet. And I would really encourage you to do so because um, I've actually translated the entire Kedushas Levi that we're going to be looking at today. And I think it's uh, Kedushas Levi that you'll not only enjoy when you watch or listen to the Shir, but you'll want to share it. That's how special it is. So I really encourage you to download the source sheet and to share it with as many people as possible. Lahagdil Torah Ulaha'adira. So let me read you the psukim in Perek Yud Posuk Chof Aleph of Shmois, Parshas Boy. Vayoyma Hashem al Moshe. And God said to Moshe, Neteyod chala shomayim, stretch out your hand towards the heaven, towards the sky. Vihichoshech, and there may be darkness, alert Mitzrayim over the land of Egypt. Vayomesh choshech. So those are the two words that we're going to be focusing a lot of attention on today. Darkness that can be felt. That's the way it's generally translated. Um, it's a contentious translation. Uh, Rashi is going to, we're going to look at Rashi, but Rashi is certainly not the only opinion on this subject. Uh, but we're going to see that this concept of is the true definition of the plague of darkness. Continues the next pasuk, pasuk of base, Vayet Moshe's Yod and Moshe did indeed stretch his hand out toward the heaven, towards the sky, 
and there was darkness, it was very thick, over the entire land of Egypt, for three days. So the initial darkness lasted for three days. And this really is the way we understand it, that for those three days, a person could not see their brother. In other words, you couldn't see anybody during that period of time. And then there was another three days of darkness. And for the following three days, you weren't even, even able to move. Here's the most puzzling aspect of the whole plague. Throughout this period, the Jewish people did not have darkness, they had light. In their homes, in their dwelling places, there was light, even as the Egyptians suffered from darkness. And there's the well-known medrash of the Jewish people who were able to see. There was absolutely no problem with them. They, they didn't lose the ability to see what was going on around them. And they went into the Egyptians' homes and they scouted out the treasures of Egypt in the homes of the people who had enslaved them. And then afterwards, after Makas Bechoris, when they were liberated and they were about to leave, they went to those people and they said, um, can we have um, your treasures? And the people said, well, what are you talking about? We don't have any treasures. And they said, no, you're not true at all. And the cupboard under the stairs, we saw it because we came to your house during Choyshech. So the Jewish people, it would appear, did not just have sight, but they were able to see. In which case, how are we to understand the plague of darkness? It's very puzzling. And what is Choyshech Afela? What is the Yomish Choyshech? There's a lot of aspects of this plague, of this affliction that Egypt was forced to suffer that don't make a lot of sense. Uh, if we're just going to look at this from a, a childish perspective, it was very, very dark, like the night. And the Egyptians had to suffer through uh, uh, six days of darkness, and then it was light again when the plague was over. But that's not what the Posuk says. The Psukim seem to indicate otherwise. They seem to be saying that there was another kind of darkness, something else. And not only was that darkness worse than the ordinary type of darkness that we experience, no. It was a darkness that only the Egyptians experienced, but the Jewish nation didn't have it. So how does that work? How is it possible for it to be dark for one person and light for another? So I'm going to look at uh, now, uh, and you won't usually hear this in a rabbi's shear, but uh, I, I think that it's important to look at the very earliest interpretation. So usually when uh, somebody, a rabbi, says we're going to look at early interpretations, we look at a Gemara, or sometimes we look at the Rishonim, we look at Rashi or Ramban. I'm going to look at two very different um, sources of information about how to understand the narratives of the Torah. The first one is Philo of Alexandria. Okay? So Philip of Alexandria was, uh, who was an Egyptian Jew, and he wrote uh, about the history of the Jewish people, not just of the Jewish people, the history of his era, of the world. And in his history of the Jewish people, in describing the plagues of Egypt, this is what he has to say about the plague of darkness. Interesting, isn't it? Listen to what he says. If you look at it, it's source two in your source sheet. They couldn't use candles he says, because a stormy wind would blow them out. It was very windy during uh, the Makkah of Choshech, 
And therefore, even though in those days there weren't electric lights, and therefore there was a power outage, because every time they tried to light a candle, they couldn't get the fire to stay on. And therefore, the darkness was all enveloping because there wasn't possible, it wasn't possible for them to create any light, even while everything around them was dark. Besides, says Philo of Alexandria, the darkness was so dense that no candle could stay lit. There was something physical about the darkness. They had eyes but could not see. Their vision was gone. So he proposes another idea that the Egyptians went temporarily blind. They weren't able to see. And when their sense of sight was taken, so this choshech afela is not darkness in the sense that when it's night, it's dark. It's something else completely. Physically, they were affected. Anatomically, they went blind. They weren't able to see. And their other senses were taken too. And Phil of Alexandria says that during the Makkah of Choshech, they became completely catatonic. They couldn't speak. Their ears were deaf. They lost their sense of taste. Everyone was completely motionless and catatonic. This is all in Phil of Alexandria, who lived... 2,000 years ago, this was his description, this was the tradition that he had as to what the Makkah of Choshech was. And hunger seized them and made them suffer. They sat for six days, they weren't able to eat, they weren't able to drink, they weren't able to do anything. And now it doesn't report in the Torah that anyone died from it, but one can assume that this was a, a catastrophic situation. People were not able to function as normal human beings. They'd lost their sense of sight. They'd lost their sense of hearing. They'd lost their sense of uh, ability to speak. They couldn't taste anything. I'm assuming they couldn't smell. Sounds familiar, right? From the period that we're living through at the moment. They were suffering immeasurably. And the plague of Choshech wasn't just a darkness, a physical darkness that, like in the nighttime, you can't see because there's no light but actually they were suffering physically, physiologically. They were affected during this plague of darkness. Philo of Alexandria. Now we're going to look at Josephus. Number three on your list, Josephus Flavius, who, if, if you remember, was the historian of the Jews during the Roman era. He witnessed the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash in the year 70. He was from the Galilee. He was a Jewish general, a Jewish fighter, but he... He had surrendered to the Romans and he joined himself up with the Ro Roman legionaries and he was part of the Roman encampment outside Jerusalem during the period of the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, and he became an apologist for the Jews by writing a number of different works, the Antiquities of the Jews, etc., a few different works which describe uh, the Jewish nation's history and the Jewish nation in the present, at least in his contemporary period. And this is what he has to say about Makkah, the Makkah of Choshech, the plague of darkness. Dense darkness, he says, without a particle of light enveloped the Egyptians. It seems to me that he's describing something which used to be referred to as London fog. Do you know what London fog is? It was fog that was so physical that you literally couldn't see even a foot or two feet in front of you. It was like a physical, it's like a 
cloud of fog that enveloped the city of London during the period when everybody was using coal fires and for certain atmospheric condition, because of certain atmospheric conditions, that fog wasn't able to move. They used to, in, in London, actually, they used to call it a pea super because it felt like you were in the midst of pea soup. That was the Choyshech, says Josephus. That was the plague of darkness in Egypt. Darkness so thick that their eyes were blinded by it and their breath was choked. And they either met with a miserable end or lived in terror of being swallowed up by the fog. So he also speaks of it as being deathly. Although there's no reports of death in the Torah, he seems to indicate, as does Philo of Alexandria, that people died as a result of this mak of this plague of Choshech of darkness. So we have here various different ways of understanding it. And by the way, you'll see similar ideas reflected in the Rishonim and of course in the Achronim, in the different Mepharshim, um, the commentators that we're much more familiar with in terms of, uh, of describing the Makot Choshech. But we have here ideas that uh, you may have heard before, but here in their original source, blindness, a fog that's so thick that you can't see, inability to do anything, completely frozen in your place, not able to move, catatonic. All of these ideas are expressed by later commentary as well, commentaries, but uh, here in their original source. Uh, and now I want to talk to you about the concept of darkness. What is darkness? Is darkness darkness or is darkness the absence of light? So I'm going to now uh, share with you, it's a very famous story, and um, we're going to uh, um, share the story and look at the story, understand the story. I'm going to actually not dismiss the story. I'm going to look at the Caduceus Levi, which is somewhat parallel. So here's the story. Um, now, the student in the following anecdote is often misidentified as a young Albert Einstein. It wasn't him. And it is unclear whether this, this idealized story ever really happened. But the moshal and the nimshal are too good to be passed up. That's why I'm sharing it with you. Anyway, here goes. One day, a university professor challenged his students with the following question. Did God create everything that exists? A student replied, yes, he did. God created everything? Are you sure? The professor asked. Yes, sir. The student answered. The professor looked at him and smiled. If God created everything, then God created evil, since evil exists. And according to the principle that what we do defines who we are, then it must be true that God is evil. The student was stunned into silence by this seemingly irrefutable logic. The professor was quite pleased with himself and boasted to the students that he had proven once more that faith in God and religious belief were wrong. You see, the professor was an atheist. Then another student raised his hand and said, Can I ask you a question, professor? Of course, replied the professor. Professor, does cold exist? What kind of question is this? Of course cold exists. Have you never been cold? The other students all laughed at their friend's very silly question. The young man was unfazed. In fact, sir, he said, cold does not exist according to the laws of physics. What we consider to be cold is in reality the absence of heat. 
Every body or object is susceptible to study when it has or transmits energy, and heat is what makes a body or matter have or transmit energy. Absolute zero, minus 460 degrees Fahrenheit, is the total absence of heat. All matter becomes inert and incapable of reaction at that temperature. Cold does not exist. We have created the word cold to describe how we feel if we have no heat. The student continued. Professor, does darkness exist? The professor responded, of course it does. Once again, the student answered his own question and dismissed the professor's reply. You're wrong, sir, he said. Darkness does not exist either. Darkness is in reality the absence of light. Light we can study, but not darkness. In fact, we can use Isaac Newton's prism to break white light into many colours and study the various wavelengths of each colour. But you can't measure darkness. A simple ray of light can break into a world of darkness and illuminate it. How can you know how dark a certain space is? You measure the amount of light present, correct? Darkness is a word invented by man to describe what happens when there's no light. The professor nodded. Now the student came to the point, Sir, does evil exist? The professor responded. Of course, as I've already said, we see it every day. It is in the daily example of man's inhumanity to man. It is in the proliferation of crime and violence everywhere in the world. These manifestations are nothing else but evil. The student shook his head. You're wrong, sir, he said. Or at least it does not exist in and of itself. Evil is simply the absence of God. It is just like darkness and cold, a word that man has created to describe the absence of God. God did not create evil. Evil is not like faith or love that exists just as light and heat. Evil is the result of what happens when man does not have God's love present in his heart. It's like the cold that comes when there is no heat or the darkness that comes when there is no light. It's an amazing story. It's a remarkable story. I don't know if it's a true story, but it's not important if it's a true story. But it describes to you exactly what it means when we say that darkness is the absence of light. But today I'm going to talk to you about a darkness that's not the absence of light, but a darkness that can attack us and can overwhelm us when there is too much light. Have you ever been blinded by light? It's blinding. Listen to this unbelievable Kedusha Slavi. The Kedusha Slavi is, it begins with a Rashi. If we look at Rashi on this, on these Psukim, the Rashi says, Remember I told you those words are important? Rashi says, look at source number four on your source sheet. V'yachshich alehem choyshech, says Rashi, yoyser mecheshchoy shalayla. Do you know what this darkness was? Not darkness. This was a darkness that shall darken for them the natural light to a higher degree than the darkness of night. Now, what is the darkness of night? Why does the night become dark? Why, does, why is there a lack of light in the night, sorry, why is there darkness in the night? Because there is a lack of light. The sun sets 
And because the sun sets, there is no light. Says Rashi, the darkness of Choshech was worse than the ordinary lack of light that we experience in the night. Choshech Shelaila Ya'amish the Yachshich Oid. The darkness of night, says Rashi, shall become even more black and dark. That's the launch pad for, I don't want to tell you how many commentaries on the Makkah of Choshech, trying to understand the Makkah of Choshech, what it means. Rashi seems to be saying, and of course he's basing himself on Messiah, on, on the traditional Jewish sources, that actually the darkness that was experienced during the course of the Makkah of Choshech was not the ordinary darkness that we experience when we don't have any light. You lock yourself up in a room and there's no source of light. I went, for example, to the museum, the blind museum in um, Cholon, in Israel, where you're taken through a series of different rooms and it's completely dark and you have to, you behave as if you're a blind person trying to work out what it is, what type of room you're in, where you are, what the things are that are around you, trying to avoid the obstacles that are put in your in your way, that's not what we are talking about, says Rashi. That's ordinary darkness. What we're talking about is something which is much more dark than the ordinary darkness that we experience or can be experienced. He seems to be saying something more than Josephus, something more than Phil of Alexandria. It's not just fog. It's not a pea super. It's not just blindness. That's natural darkness. It's the darkness of not being able to see. By the way, not everybody agrees with Rashi. He seems to be saying that there is a darkness here which is much greater, much more profound than the ordinary darkness of there being a lack of light. And now we're going to look at the Kedushas Levi. Kedushas Levi, it's fascinating. It's source number six on your sheet. And he begins by quoting Rashi. He says, Rashi focuses on the meaning of the words, that the darkness was tangible in some way. But we also need to understand, says the Kedushas Levi, Levi Yitzchok of Berdichev. He says, we need to understand why the Torah emphasized that all the dwellings of the Israelites continued to have light. Why did we need to know that? The Torah could just as easily have said that the Israelites, the Jewish people, the Bnei Israel, were not struck by the plague of darkness, that they didn't have choshech. It didn't need to say, as it says in the Pasuk, that they had oir. It could just say that they didn't have choshech. So in order to understand why the Torah put it this particular way, we need to look at a medrash. The medrash is in Shmois Rabbah. The medrash says it talks about where the darkness actually came from. And it quotes Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda says that the darkness of Makas Choshech originated in Shamaim, in the heavens. Remember, I, remember I went from the translation from the sky to heavens to heavens to sky? Because the word Shamaim in classical Hebrew is a double meaning word. It could mean the spiritual heaven, or it could mean the physical sky, Shamayim Va'aretz. Shamayim is everything that isn't part of the earth, it's beyond the atmosphere. 
or it could mean shamaim, something which isn't tangible to us. It's shamaim, it's heaven, it's something spiritual, beyond the physical universe that we are familiar with. It's, it has a double meaning, it's, it's an ambiguous word. So we said that the Choshech came from shamaim. That's what the Kedushas Levi says. So he says it originated in Shemaim and he quotes Tehillim. Tehillim, if you look at Tehillim Yudches, Posikud base, it says that there is such a phenomenon. It says as follows. It's talking about Hashem. Yoshes Choshech Sisroi Savivoisov. He makes darkness to be his screen. What's the word screen? The word screen means that somehow it blocks your view. You're not able to see something. If there's a screen, you're not able to see through it. And the Apostle Tehillim is referring to Hashem. And now we need to understand why the darkness that was decreed in Egypt had to be the same as the one that Rabbi Huda says in the Medrash in Shmois Rabbah, as that's one that's mentioned in Tehillim. This darkness seems to be alluding to a hidden kind of light which requires a screen so that it can't be seen. There is some type of physical or, I don't even know what to call it, physical or spiritual. There's a barrier. Let's just use the word barrier. A barrier that prevents you from being able to see a particular light. And that barrier creates a darkness, a blindness, a form of imposed blindness. It doesn't mean you can't see anything, it means that you can't see that, says the Kedushas Levi. We need to understand the concept underlying the concealed light. The Gemara, in Meseches Shabbos, it's Daf Lamadalad, the Gemara says in Shabbos, it talks about an incident, a story of a teacher who got very angry with one of his students. Why was he angry with him? Because they had a they had a principle that when there was a discussion, a Torah discussion in a base medrash, you're not allowed to reveal that discussion to people who are not part of the yeshiva before it's concluded. Why? Because when you're talking through a subject, you often propose ideas which, in the course, as you run through it, you totally discard and dismiss and you say that they can't be the ones that we go with, right? That's, that's what happens in philosophy, in Talmud, Pilpul. You don't always go with the argument. You propose it, you suggest it, you discuss it, you talk about it, and then you say, no, it doesn't work. So they had a principle that if there was a discussion that makes a medrash about an issue, and of course in Gemara and Talmud it's always a halachic issue, you don't reveal that discussion to people who are outsiders, who are not inside the circle of those who are discussing that particular topic. Now, it's obvious why you can't do that, because if you reveal the contents of a discussion, what's going to happen is people are going to think that that discussion is conclusive, and therefore you know everything you need to know about the subject at hand. But you don't, because you haven't heard the conclusion. You've only heard the different stodim, the different sides, the different arguments that were put forward, and not their dismissal. There was a student who broke that chain, who went against that principle, and he seems to have revealed a discussion that took place in the base medrash, and his rebbe got very angry with him. You look it up, it's a Gomorrah in Shabbos Daflamadalad. 
And the rabbi was very angry with him because he realized that as a result of that, people could make grave mistakes and errors of judgment in halacha. And that's a bad thing that would have been caused by the discussion, the base medrash, may that meant that people would hold back in their discussions in future because they wouldn't want to say something that would later be quoted, that would later be tweeted, that would later appear on Facebook. I mean, of course, that uh, didn't exist in those days, but whatever the ancient equivalent was, you wouldn't want yourself to be exposed as somebody who paskint halacha, that uh, was wrong, that caused people to do things wrong in terms of their observance of mitzvahs. And the rabbi was very angry. And he says there that nosan enov boy, that this rabbi looked at the student and as a result the student collapsed, his, um, his bones turned to dust, he died. It's very unclear as to exactly what that means. But he was completely obliterated as a result of this exposure to whatever it was that the rabbi did to him of this incident, because of this incident of him having revealed information that he shouldn't have revealed. So what does, what does it mean when the Gemara says, Nosav, Nosan Enov Boy, that he set his eyes on him? Also, in light of what it says, a posik in Mishle, Mishle Proverbs, it says, and it's uh, in Duff, in, sorry, in Perik Yud, Yudzain of Mishle, Posuk Chofvov, it says, Gam Anoish Latzadik, so the Posuk there says, very interesting, Shlom Amalech wrote Mishle. What does he say? It's not good to punish the righteous, to um, smite the good um, on their, uh, uh, as a result of the things that they have done, which may be good in their righteousness. What does that mean? What does that Posuk mean? The judge, says Shlom HaMelech, shouldn't take an especially harsh line, a harsh approach to somebody because he's a tzaddik or because he's perceived as a tzaddik within the community. Says Shlom HaMelech, that's not an appropriate approach. Don't punish somebody because they're righteous. In other words, you say, ah, because you're righteous, you get a worse punishment. That's not correct. That's not the right thing to do. So if that's the case, how could the teacher in the Gemara, this Rebbe, have punished his student by looking at him and as a result of that, his bones were ground to dust or whatever it is that happened? How was he so harsh? It seems like the yeshiva student was being more harshly treated because he was a ben Torah, because he studied in yeshiva. That doesn't seem fair. And it goes against this posuk in Mishle. Says the Kedusha Slevi, in order to understand all of this, we need to remember that the brightness that, so that surrounds the Boire Oilam, HaKodesh Baruch Hu, that surrounds Hashem, is so overpowering, the, we don't even understand what that means. The light that, that is Hashem is so incredibly overwhelming that in order for Him to create a universe in which physical and even spiritual creatures can live without dying from exposure, to so much light, God had to impose limitations on himself, but not only on himself, but also on the brightness that surrounds him. You know, they say you can't look directly at the sun. I'm not comparing Hashem to the sun. You can't look directly at the sun. It can, it can actually cause damage 
to your to your eyes if you look directly at the sun why because the brightness of the sun is so strong that it can damage it can damage your optic nerve it can destroy it it can burn it it can i don't know what it does to it it's dangerous too much exposure to the sun is dangerous and yet everything we have is only because the sun gives us the energy to exist all the plants that grow everything that we have is only as a result of the sun the sun is the source of energy for our planet so why is the sun dangerous but there's something about the sun which is beyond you know that you you can't even see it. only when there is an eclipse you can see that surrounding the sun there's light the sound the sun appears round to us but when there's an eclipse the moon goes fits perfectly over the sun which in and of itself is a crazy thing you see that there's lights that flicker around the sun well why is that because when the sun's brightness is so bright you can't see the lights around the sun but when the sun's brightness is covered you're able to see that light there's a brightness of Hashem which is so bright that nothing can ever see it. It's not even, the, as it were, the sun itself. It's not Hashem. It's the brightness around Hashem is too bright for anyone to handle. Not just physical human beings. Even Malochim are not able to hand it. And therefore God had to impose limitations on himself and on the brightness that surrounds him that people and um, spiritual beings couldn't see it. This light had to be adjusted in accordance with the ability of the creatures in the universe to tolerate it without it causing them any harm. Different regions of the universe, and we're not just talking about the physical universe, we're not just talking about all the different galaxies, different regions of creation, let's call it, were provided with light of differing degrees of intensity, tolerable for different beings, spiritual beings and physical beings. And even in the regions populated by angels, the light there is not as intense as the light that surrounded God before he created the universe. It's an incredible idea. This is the foundation of the Kedusha Slevi. Listen carefully. Different categories of angels, says the Kedusha Slevi, live in different celestial regions, each of which is illuminated in a manner that corresponds to their ability to tolerate that light's intensity. These angels can't see the light of the higher regions in the celestial spheres, spheres than those they inhabit. They can only see the light that they can see, but the light of the region which is above them is absolutely off-limits to them, and they are not blinded through exposure to overpowering brightness, because we, they do, we don't want those malochim to see a brightness that they can't tolerate, because it would destroy them, it would burn them. Remember that story of the two children, the two sons of Aaron HaKohen, going into the Kodesh Kodoshim? They experienced a brightness that they couldn't tolerate, and what happened? They were incinerated. They couldn't possibly handle that level, that intensity of Kedusha. And that Kedusha is just a fraction of the brightness that we're talking about in terms of God's being. 
These details of what goes on in the heavenly spheres is referred to in Yeshaya. In Yeshaya's description, his vision, and it's if you look at Yeshaya, you know Yeshaya is 64 chapters long. Look at chapter Vov, Perik Vov of Yeshaya, Posuk Base. The prophet describes the angels as using two of their six wings to cover their faces and two of their six wings to cover their feet and that they fly with two. They have six wings. Why do they have six? Says the Posuk, Vishtayim Yechase Ponov. And then, with two he covers his face, two he covers his feet, and with two he will fly. What does it mean? What's Yeshaya talking about? They have wings? Why would angels have wings? Why do they need wings? I know it looks great on a birthday card, on an anniversary card, when you, you, know, you want to have a picture of an angel. But that's not what he's talking about. What is he talking about? Why would they need to use their wings to cover their eyes or their feet? Do you know what the explanation is? This is Kedusha Slevi. Covering his face in this context means not looking into the region above him. Because a Malach is in a region where he can handle the light. Eyes is higher, as it were, looking somewhere higher and beyond. He covers his eyes. He doesn't want to be in a situation where he's going to be incinerated by the light that he can't handle. And what about his feet? Covering his feet alludes to this idea of not looking into the lower regions. You stay in the region that you're familiar with. Because in the lower regions, you won't see any light at all. It's not light. It's darkness. It's beneath his habitat. Now, what's interesting about the Jewish people is that we are somehow bit more chameleon-like. We can be more spiritual or less spiritual. We can be more human and, and physical creature-like, or we can be more angelic, like the angels. We're able to, uh, to go from one world to another. The Jewish people aren't like the angels because they have the Torah. They have mitzvahs. They're able to use these as, as it was, protective clothing so that they can be at home and comfortable in different regions exposed to different intensities of light. That's the Jewish people, says, says the base, uh, says Levi Yitzchok of Bredichev, the Kedusha Slevi. On the other hand, he says, the wicked people of the world, the Rishoim, namely the overwhelming majority of the Gentile nations who reject God, who don't believe in the existence of God, if and when they ever become exposed to an intensity of light that they are not accustomed to, they will be blinded by it and ultimately they're going to die. They won't be able to handle it. When you have too much of a good thing, if you eat too much ice cream, you're going to get sick. If you have too much light, and we know this today in the modern world, if you expose yourself too much to the sun, you're endangering yourself to get skin cancer. But the sun is a good thing. We wouldn't be able to live without the sun. Yes, but too much of a good thing is also bad. If the Gentile nations that don't believe in God have too much of the light of Hashem, even in this physical world, it's too much for them to handle. They're not able to handle it. It's a process. They can only handle exposure to God if they go through that process. And the Talmud hints at this idea in the story in Gemar Shabbos in Daflam Adalad, 
when it says that the rabbi Nosan Enov Boy, that he looked at his student, what does it mean? He exposed the student to an intense spiritual light that he couldn't handle. He wanted to see if this student, when he shared information for the base medrash, was doing something positive, but he, when he exposed him to the intensity of the light of Torah, to the purity of the light of Torah, he wasn't able to handle it, and he collapsed on the spot. We don't know what that means, but we know that that student was not able... This, the Rebbe never said to him, you did something wrong. He just looked at him, and that was enough to, to completely destroy him and undermine him. He, he was overexposed to an intensity of light for which he simply was not prepared. When the Torah describes the impact of Makas Choshech, of the plague of darkness, on the Egyptians, it says, Remember, that's what Rashi discussed. The word Yomesh is being used in the sense of removal, withdrawal of the, protect, of the protective screen. The Yomesh Choshech, Hashem removed the Choshech, the screen between him and the physical world, at least for the land of Egypt. It's the protective screen that we humans enjoy. And we are sustained by, because that we, so we're not killed, we're not destroyed by the overpowering brightness of God's light. It's a brilliant light. The word Yomesh, by the way, will be familiar to the reader of Torah, in the sense that in Shmois, Periglamad Gimel, Pasukut Aleph, it says, Yeshua didn't depart, didn't leave Moshe's tent. What does it say? Yeshua binun na'ar. He didn't remove himself. He didn't withdraw himself. Also in Yehoshua, in the first book of the Nevi'im after the Torah, Yehoshua, in Perik Aleph Posik Ches, it says that Yehoshua was commanded never to be without a Torah scroll. And what are the words that are used? This book of Torah must never be removed from your lips. You must immerse yourself in it day and night. The Yomesh Choshech. The Choshech, so interesting. The darkness was removed. It's a totally different way of looking at Makas Choshech. Makas Choshech wasn't an absence of light. It was a proliferation of light. It was a removal of the protection of darkness. And the Egyptians simply couldn't handle the exposure to the light of Hashem. And now we can understand why the Gemara describes the result of the protective screen consisting, if you, um, consisting of the Torah knowledge. If, you're with, if the rabbi in the Gemara in Shabbos removes that protect, protective screen from his student, the student would turn into a heap of bones. He's not able to handle it. His body will have been burnt in a flash from the excessive brightness to which he'd become exposed. And based on what we've just said, it's also easy to understand, says the Kedusha Slevi, why the Torah chose to describe the situation of the Bnei Yisrael during the period of this plague as being one that enjoyed light in their dwellings, that they had oil. How come the Jewish people had light and the Egyptians had darkness? Because they could handle the light. For them, the light wasn't blinding. It was light that was light. For the Egyptians, that light was too bright. 
but for the Jewish people it was just right. They continued being protected by the screen against excessive light that a people that deserves the name B'nai Israel are entitled to by birthright, by being descended from the Ovis Akdoshim, from Avraham, Yitzhak and Yaakov, from the Holy Patriarchs. And these considerations can also help us understand a statement in the Gemara in Adorim, it's in Davches, look it up. Le'osid lovey. When Moshiach comes, Yoitzi HaKodesh Baruch Hu Eschama Minartiko. God will take the ultimate source of light that we're familiar with, the sun, from its nartiko, from its nartik, tzadikim misrapim, righteous people will be healed as a result through that. But Rishoyim will suffer, will be destroyed, will be judged by it. What does that mean? That tzadikim, who can handle the light of Hashem, who can handle the light when it's in its pure brightness will benefit from the fact that they have the extra brightness of the sun being removed from its nartic, from its protection. That screen that we have, the sunscreen, let's call it that, that we have to protect us from the damage that can be caused by excessive light. But there is shame. They have no such protection. They're like the Mitzrayim, the Egyptians in Egypt. Through, through the Makkah of Choshech. They're not able to defend themselves against that light. That intensity of light is blinding. It's immobilizing. It's something that they cannot handle, may even result in people dying, because it's simply too much. And we must daven, we must pray, that we are zoicha to have ever-increasing amounts of light from Hashem that we should never suffer from the Makkah, from the plague of Choshech, of being so immersed in the physical, material world, that when we are exposed to the light of Hashem, it blinds us and immobilizes us. We should be blessed with the ability to benefit from the light without it damaging us or blinding us or turning us into catatonic Egyptians as the country of Egypt was and Pare was during that period of the ninth plague, the Makkah of Choshech. We'll leave it here for today. Thank you.